87, Radio Nation of Alberta, Region 3, Musical Destinations Unknown. Oh boy! producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Yes, the decorum of the Biden presidency differs from that of the Trump presidency, but the underlying mercenary exploitation and sadism of American society remains untouched. We will extract ourselves from this culture of sadism, the way the dispossessed extracted themselves from the stranglehold of crony capitalism during the Great Depression by organizing, protesting, and disrupting the system until the ruling elites are forced to grant a measure of social and economic justice. That's Chris Hedges, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Chris Hedges, Questions and Answers on American Sadism. The great 20th century Irish poet William Butler Yeats wrote, We had fed the heart on fantasies, the hearts grown brutal from the fair. The United States has long fed its heart with fairy tales about itself. Hardly a day goes by without some new story being spun about our noble intentions, benevolence, and devotion to international law. Sadism is not something new. Just ask indigenous peoples and blacks or the Vietnamese and Iraqis. Chris Hedges warns, the violence and exploitation, which has long defined imperial projects, now defines existence at home. For empires in the end cannibalize themselves. The tyranny we long imposed on others, we now impose on ourselves. The dark pleasure derived from exploiting others is all that is left. Our guest today is Chris Hedges. He's an award-winning journalist who's reported from the Balkans, the Middle East, and Central America. He writes a weekly column for SheerPost.com and he's the host of On Contact on RT-TV. He's the author of many books, including Wages of Rebellion and America, the Farewell Tour. Chris Hedges spoke on the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on June 27th. The moderator, Megan Marone, asks the first question. I guess a first question I have for you that I was just thinking about as I was listening is that um, to a certain extent, you know, all of the information that you include, all of the history that you include in the speech and uh, the contextualization of that, it's almost 
like you are a storyteller for the people who are open-minded enough to listen to you. In some ways, like if you're the type of person who reads and listens to Chris Hedges, then there's this openness and in some ways you're framing history for us and um, contextualizing the current social and political moment. So I'm just wondering if you've ever seen yourself in that role, um, given that you include detailed historical accounts in all of your speeches. I don't know if you've ever considered yourself a storyteller, but also maybe um, talking about the weirdness of that for you in terms of also knowing that beyond that circle of people who would be open to the vision of Chris Hedges, there's this whole other world that you are unpacking. Well, history is a story, and it's our story. But of course, as many great philosophers of history have understood, Howard Zinn has written about this, among others, the dominant forces seek to form a story that justifies buttresses and even glorifies their grip on power. And so all tyrannies, Hannah Arendt writes about this, seek to impose a kind of historical amnesia on a subjugated population because they don't want that population to remember, to know where it came from. And you see that always campaigns of genocide, whether it's carried out against African Americans, what was the first thing that happened when Africans were brought to the shores? They Their names were taken from them. Their language was taken from them. You see it with native communities, uh, indigenous communities. There's always a cultural genocide that accompanies tyranny. And I think that cultural genocide is quite pronounced now within the United States. I think that we don't know where we came from. I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about the official narrative of great white men like FDR who saved us, which is just factually incorrect. It's all of those forces that forced the ruling elites to respond. They will always take credit for it. I mean, I didn't see the film Lincoln because I read that Frederick Douglass doesn't make an appearance in the film Lincoln. Um, How can you write about emancipation and not write about or, or not acknowledge that it was figures like Douglass who pushed Lincoln and the ruling elites to end slavery? Um, remember, Lincoln uh, was not an abolitionist. The abolitionists were outliers, people that they dismissed as utopians. And yet by the end of the war, everything the abolitionists called for came to pass, which was the complete eradication of slavery. So I think that keeping ourselves grounded in our own history is absolutely fundamental. I mean, one of the things you read Emma Goldman And, you know, they're working 12 hours a day in sweatshops in the Lower East Side, but then they're going to radical Yiddish study groups in the evening. And and one of the things we've lost with the union movement, and we forget, is that there was a huge component of education within the union movement. And that's done by design. The the design is to sever ourselves from our own history. I taught a people's history of the United States in a prison in New Jersey. The room was filled with mostly poor, I think completely poor black men. And uh, Zinn, who's very cognizant of the African-American experience from the start of the Republic all the way through, 
was telling their story, Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass's Fourth of July speech and, um, and Malcolm X, etc., and they were riveted. In fact, I would be giving these talks from the book and I would hear them go, damn, we've been lied to. And they have been lied to. And that's by design. So uh, part of control, Gramsci writes about this, is essentially keeping uh, an oppressed population ignorant of their own history. But now, under corporate oppression, I think that, that we, don't, we don't know how we got here. I mean, American society was created as a closed system uh, which disenfranchised large numbers of people, landless, blacks, Native Americans, women. It created the Electoral College. It used to be that um, senators were appointed. It was all done to thwart, they were quite open about it, by slaveholding white aristocrats, to thwart popular democracy. And every advance that we made, as in Chronicles, and often paid for by blood, we had the bloodiest labor wars in the industrialized world. Hundreds of American workers were murdered, hundreds. Tens of thousands were blacklisted. Whether it was the civil rights movement, the suffragists, there was a high cost that was paid to open up that society. And after the Vietnam War and the rise of not just the anti-war movement, but the feminist movement, indigenous movements, the civil rights movement, the ruling elites, as Samuel Huntington wrote, wanted to respond to what he called the excess of democracy, and they've quite effectively now carried out a corporate coup d'etat. And part of that is making sure we don't remember where we came from and how we got here and who it was that opened up our society for us. Thinking about a lot of things now, but we have some questions coming in. This family wrote in, I I removed my kids from their public school. I look back on my public school civics and history as simple white supremacy myth. Women and people of color play no role. What can someone as well educated as you suggest about education? Well, public education in America was once perhaps the crown jewel of American democracy. And it has been uh, assaulted and, and destroyed through a variety of mechanisms. So you have in depressed communities failing schools by design because schools are paid for by property taxes and because the ruling elites uh, feel that people in poor communities only need to learn numerical literacy to work at low-end, low-wage jobs. That's all they need. And so that's all they get. And then you go to universities like Princeton, and I've taught at Princeton, and there you get people who also are integrated vocationally into the system as the dominant systems managers. The largest major at Princeton and at Harvard is computer science. So it's all vocational. The humanities are under complete assault because, and the ruling elites understand, and they're not wrong in this, that the humanities, when they're taught correctly, are subversive. They are meant to teach you how to think, not what to think. They are meant to give you the language to question reigning assumptions. And so even in major universities, 
uh, all of the humanities are withering away at, at, at major universities like Princeton or Harvard, but then at state universities, they do that uh, by uh, flooding departments or demanding that corporates ra- uh, uh, departments raise corporate money, not only for their research, but often for their salaries. And then those that teach the humanities, 70-plus percent, are now adjuncts who make $4,000 a course. You know, that's barely above the poverty line if they teach four courses a semester. Uh, and they have no protection. They don't get tenure. These are non-tenure track positions. They don't have a union. And so they have to be very careful about what they say or they're pushed out. So I look at the broad assault at every level within American education as uh, one of the most destructive forces to American democracy. And it doesn't matter whether it's at Princeton or in a public school in Troy, New York. I know you teach in a public school, and I think teachers are, I think it's one of the most heroic professions we have in our society. But the pressure, and of course a lot of it, if you, if you go to uh, schools that are funneling kids into college, it's all, the course curriculum is all predetermined by largely for-profit entities. Um, so that, that's not an accident. They, they understand very well what they're doing. Um, and I think that's one, been one of the major contributors to the breakdown of American democracy. This person has two uh, questions. The first one is, what do you make of America's growing tensions with China? Well, I mean, the problem with a uh, uh, military is that, that, that devours such significant amount of resources they need to justify themselves. Uh, and they do that by uh, creating conflicts whether one needs to be created or not. So, for instance, Reagan had promised Gorbachev that NATO would not expand beyond Germany's borders. NATO has now expanded all through Eastern Europe up to Russia's borders. Why? Uh, Because that means billions upon billions of dollars for the arms industry. So when I was in Warsaw... I got off at the airport, and there were giant billboards, not only in the airport, but on the way into Warsaw, uh, from Raytheon, because those East European armies have to become compatible with NATO weapon systems. So you don't want your military determining global relations, diplomacy, or how you cooperate or function with competing power centers, uh, because they know how to do only one thing. Uh, and that's fight wars. That's their business. And there are a lot of people that make a lot of money off it. I mean, the only thing we really make anymore are weapons. But there's no accountability control at all over the military. They, they don't even allow themselves to be audited. Nobody even challenges a weapon system. It doesn't matter how many billions of dollars they squander on warships that don't work. or It doesn't make any difference. They, they, and, and even Biden increases the military budget. And Trump increased it by 10%, and they'd even, the Pentagon didn't even ask for a 10% increase. So if you look at the collapse of any imperial power, it's a rapacious, out-of-control military machine. That's what typified ancient Rome. They mounted a one-million-man army. That's what doomed the Habsburg Empire. That's what doomed 
the Kaiser and the German empires were doomed most of the monarchies of Europe because that military apparatus seized complete control and was, was no longer able to be contained. And that's where we are. So that's why. It's a business. It's a good business. Um, it doesn't make any sense. It's extremely dangerous. Just, you know, expanding the expansion of NATO alone is extremely dangerous. But what we should also note is that there is a huge move on the part of major powers like China, Russia, and others to uh, sever themselves from the dollar as the reserve currency. And we also know, because it happened to the pound sterling in the 50s to Britain, that when the dollar is no longer the world's reserves currency, the uh, American economy goes into freefall. Uh, the dollar is worth about a third of its value, imports become prohibitive, and the, the, the extension of empire can no longer be maintained. Now, Alfred McCoy, is, the historian, has written quite a bit about this. He actually puts a date when he thinks that's going to happen. I think that's pretty dangerous. Uh, but, but we're certainly moving in that direction. And all you have to do is look at what happened in the 50s when the world's reserve currency shifted from the pound sterling to the dollar and the devastation it caused in the British economy. And that... I think McCoy is right, will, will be the final kind of nail in the coffin of the American empire. Okay. Um, they ask, also, I've heard you say Trump was too incompetent to stage a successful coup, yet his conspirators came within hundreds of seconds of taking a member of Congress hostage, presumably in an attempt to use them as a bargaining chip to overturn election results. Seeing how not very much is being done about this, shouldn't everyone who is complicit in making January 6th happen be feeling pretty good about themselves at this moment? I don't think the word insurrection or coup is correct. I've actually lived through various coups and insurrections. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, what did they do? They got inside the chambers and were taking selfies of themselves in Mike Pence's chair. It didn't appear to have any real plan. Uh, they would have been easily surrounded by military forces. They didn't have weapons. And even if they did, uh, they wouldn't have been able to survive a siege. They didn't have any support within the military. I, I think that they were an enraged mob. I think they certainly would have loved to have grabbed Nancy Pelosi. I don't in any way uh, disagree that certain members of Congress were in real physical danger. Uh, but it, it, it struck me as a mob not as a coup. I, I, cover, I live through coups in Latin America. I've, you know, those things are coordinated, well-planned in advance, and they have military muscle behind them. This person writes in, and can you speak to infrastructure with respect to toxic masculinity or sadism? I would say to toxic masculinity is cultural. Pornography is you know, exhibit A, the lust for violence, the fetishizing weapons, which is very much a part of American culture, the notion that masculinity is about the power to completely dominate or eradicate the other. This is fed to us by Hollywood. It's fed to us on video games. It's just ubiquitous, frankly. Uh, and that hyper-masculinity is an element always, of course, of, of sadism, of a, of a sadistic culture. Um, there are writers of, I think, pretty prescient writers of fascism who argue that fascism in and itself has no coherent ideology, uh, but is just driven by emo an emotionally driven celebration of hypermasculinity. 
but we certainly, our society is infused with a very dangerous hypermasculinity, which is really about shutting off uh, empathy, compassion, uh, the ability to nurture, to care. All of these qualities are defined, you know, as quote unquote feminine. Uh, and therefore denigrated, and certainly denigrated within mass media. Could you speak more, Chris, to the failure of the church in America to be on the front lines of these proliferating and intensifying existential threats and, frankly, spiritual warfare? Yeah. We're talking about the liberal church, which I come out of. Uh, My father was a Presbyterian minister. My mother was a seminary graduate and a college professor, and I graduated from Harvard Divinity School, and I don't broadcast it, but I'm actually an ordained Presbyterian minister. The church completely checked out. Uh, it did it uh, two ways. One, uh, it, uh, it, it followed the zeitgeist of the culture so that spirituality became, it was this kind of how is it with me spirituality, which is just narcissism. It severed itself from uh, the uh, I think the bedrock calls for justice and for the oppressed, uh, with maybe the singular exception of James Cone, uh, the greatest theologian in America since Reinhold Niebuhr. It busied itself with the search for the quote-unquote historical Jesus. There is no historical Jesus. Uh, I read all these theological texts, and in every time period, uh, historians. We used to read a historian, uh, a theologian called Rudolf Bultmann, who was an existentialist and, of course, made Jesus an existentialist. You know, whatever, uh, Albert Schweitzer actually wrote a good book on this uh, around 1906 where he looked at all of these movements. So you see it with these people who are obsessed with the Gnostic Gospels. It's about creating a belief system in your own image. The liberal church became like the liberal class, and I wrote a book called Death of the Liberal Class, and the church rendered itself irrelevant because it became incredibly inward. It was focused inward. It was focused on itself. It, it forgot that it's, that Martin Buber says that in the end, it's not about us. It's about our neighbor. It forgot. I was just thinking again, you know, do you ever think um, just zooming out as far, I don't even know what this point would be but as far as you can go as a human in zooming out on our situation here on planet earth um you know i was just thinking about death of the liberal class and the corruption of all of these liberal institutions the church school press culture itself um politics that's the one the democratic party and um you know, just then you have the climate crisis, then you have the um, the lunacy of the far right and the Republican Party in general now. So I guess in uh, going to that meta zoomed out perspective, are you ever surprised at where we're at? Like, I'm sure you have the feeling sometimes when you're writing of channeling a little bit or listening to a higher uh, force or power, even within yourself of what you're writing about. But Um, Do you just ever have the feeling after you compose one of these speeches of, okay, this is where where we're at? (laughs) I'm not surprised. I'm just depressed. Uh, I mean, I don't want to be right. I'd like to be proved wrong. Um, But I think any, you know, in the end, my training is as a newspaper reporter. Uh, And I found 
that there were two types of reporters. There were those reporters that knew what tomorrow's story was and those that didn't. So I, had, I was working for the New York Times overseas. I had to compete with very fine reporters from the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, AP. And I, I never worried about those reporters, which were the majority, who couldn't figure out what tomorrow's story was. I was always terrified of those reporters I was up against who did know what tomorrow's story was. And the reason was because I didn't live, eat, and breathe news. While everybody would go to the bar and drink to talk, keep talking about the stories they'd spent all day covering, I was in my room reading Proust. And that put me at a disadvantage. So I think that it is that ability to, for whether it's intuitive, you know, it may be partly intuitive. I think a lot of it has to do with understanding human nature and how human nature works, um, understanding systems of power and how they work. But I think that good reporters know. And I certainly had that quality. Um, and so, no, I'm not surprised. But I'm not happy about being proven right. Um, well, thank you. Uh, Andrea B. writes in, it seems there's two energies in the world. Evil is never going to go away. It's a constant energy. Is evil fear? Or is it much more than that? Is it greed, power, power hunger? And how can fear be kept in check? No, evil is not fear. Fear in societies at war First of all, fear is utterly pervasive. It's one of the reasons why you can't replicate the reality of war in a film, in images, because you've extracted from those who are watching it the predominant feeling, which is fear, along with the sounds and the smells and everything else, and the chaos. The other thing about combat is that it's utter confusion. You, you, never, you, you only know what's happening around you, you know, a tiny perimeter around you. And what, what takes place after a firefight is that you actually construct a story to explain what happened. But at the moment, you, have, you don't even know. I was, uh, when I was a prisoner in Basra, I was with a light armor battalion. We were ambushed, 16 hours of combat. And I remember... You, you, even in small arms engagements, you, you, you have a very hard time figuring out where the firing is com coming from. I mean, a lot of your time is just that simple task of trying to figure out where the line of fire is coming from. So fear is pervasive. Evil is not fear. And fear keeps most people passive. Susan Sontag used to say 10% of people are good. 10% of people are evil, and the rest can go either way. But fear, especially in societies that lose credibility, fear becomes the primary mechanism of control. I mean, a lot of people don't know that historically, in, certainly in the rise to power, Mussolini was far more violent and brutal than the Nazis. But it's that random act. Solzhenitsyn writes about this. Hannah Arendt writes about this. It's, it's that person that, you know, suddenly Zach disappears and you don't know why. It's about the creation of terror or fear as a mechanism of control. 
I mean, radical evil, I think Kant and others who've written about radical evil are right, it, or Freud, I mean, it is the death instinct. It is about the negation of the other, the dehumanization of the other, the turning the other into an object. And, and once people are turned into objects, then you've essentially given yourself a moral license to both manipulate and destroy because they're less than human. And that's evil. It is the denial of the humanity of the other, the, the inability to see yourself in the other. And that becomes a process by which that leads to the extermination of the other. Um, so, I mean, why, why is racism evil? Because racism is about denying the humanity of the other, and then the consequences of that are unchecked, lethal po- violence by militarized police, lynching, you know, the long litany of crimes that have been committed against African Americans in this country. Um, so, yeah, that, I guess that's evil. It always is the precursor to the destruction of the other. You have to demonize the other. And, and, and once the other is demonized as a contaminant within the society, it's a very short step towards their physical eradication. You're listening to Chris Hedges, Questions and Answers on American Sadism. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get CDs of this program and Vijay Prashad's book, Washington Bullets, the CIA Coups and Assassinations, by calling us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, MP3s, and PDFs of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Just with what you were just saying about objectification of an other, or even all life itself, I mean, I think even what we do to animals and then um, the breakdown of the value of life there, in some ways with corporate capitalism, it's almost like you have an inverse, uh, it's like a photographic negative of... um, in other words, if the corporate state is about objectification, then you could see why in, in terms of your analysis and all the different aspects of life that you pull in, why all of these systems are failing. Because if you know, the corporation is the top of the hegemonic pyramid here, then the corporate, corporate uh, MO is essentially about objectification. Completely, you know, it's a because we're all just, commodities. Yeah, we're, we're commodities yeah. to, to exhaust, to, to exploit until exhaustion or collapse. That's it. And that ethos has now just permeated the entire society. This person writes in uh, the bull moose. Is there, is there an online name? It says, uh, do you think it would ever be possible as our society is currently organized or given these um, 
context to organize a movement powerful enough to actually make the ruling class fear and force them to respond. Yes, that was done in the 1960s, which is why the ruling class has made war on everything the 60s built, starting with Ralph Nader, who I'm close to. I was Ralph Nader's speechwriter when he was running for president. Um, yes, they, they saw those movements, and they were terrified. Um, I mean, look at the Occupy movement. Uh, the Occupy movement terrified the elites, which is why there was a coordinated effort led by Barack Obama to physically eradicate all the Occupy movements. It's why the state expended tremendous resources in terms of infiltrating it and monitoring it. And yet, when history is written, what the, the demands of the Occupy movement were not particularly radical. They were just, re not only were they reasonable, but they actually articulated what most of the country wants. I think that was a terrible mistake on the part of the ruling elites. So yes, we can, and you don't, you don't actually need a huge, you need a percentage of people willing to go out into the street, but we're talking one to three percent. I remember talking to Jesse Jackson about marches at Birmingham, and I made a comment about the courage of the hundreds of civil rights activists who were willing to, and he started laughing. He said, hundreds? He said, there's a couple dozen. Whether it was the Freedom Rides, whether it was the people standing up to Bull Connor's dogs, they weren't large in number. But they didn't back down. And they became, through their physical courage, our moral conscience. So, yes, I pray for it every night because that's our only hope. We're already facing climate catastrophe, even if we stop all carbon emissions today. And we have no time left to fool around. But this is the only mechanism that has any chance of saving us is one that we've seen before. And that is building mass movements that frighten the elites and that may not have the incorporate the participation of the vast majority, but act as their conscience. And I would say that even with Occupy's, that was true at the beginning. People were sending pizzas, and I mean, Occupy acted in many ways as the conscience, and not just for the kids who were there, but for all sorts of people who didn't have jobs, who were foreclosed from their homes, who were you know, crippled by student debt, trapped in low-wage jobs. Yeah. Well, this next question would get at the... Uh traps of liberalism and what's going on now with, in relation to any resistance movements. This is from Josh Nin. He asks, can you speak about Biden's new anti-terrorism measure that classifies socialists and those that oppose capitalism as domestic terrorists? And you mentioned in the speech being for Extinction Rebellion, and they mentioned something in that also about um, environmental groups that they deem too extreme. Yeah, I mean, we have to remember Biden was selected by the ruling elites that didn't want Sanders, although Sanders is hardly a radical. He never took on the military machine. But you had major donors in the Democratic Party, Lloyd Blankfein, the former CEO of Goldman Sachs and others, made it very clear that if somehow Sanders was the nominee, they would vote for Trump. Now, the ruling elites didn't like Trump. He was an embarrassment. He's an apt. He has the attention span of a three-year-old. He's a megalomaniac, all the reasons we don't like Trump. 
but they can live with Trump. So Biden was selected because he would he would be a, a trusted custodian of the systems of power. I mean, that's why he was picked. And, and not only that, his entire political career is an illustration of that. So, of course, they're going to fe- blow a lot of smoke at you. That's what they're good at. Obama did it for eight years. Obama's assault on civil liberties were worse than those carried out by George W. Bush. And I sued him in federal court over one of his actions, the Section 1021 of the National Defense Authorization Act. But he reinterpreted reinterpreted the Authorization to Use Military Force Act as giving the executive branch the right to order the assassination of U.S. citizens, Anwar al-Awlaki. He used the Espionage Act nine times. It had only been used three times from 1917 when it was written until 2009 when Obama took office against whistleblowers. Obama used it nine times to shut down whistleblowers. So, and Biden was part of this uh, integral part of this process. I mean, go back and read Biden's stuff uh, on the war on crime in the 90s. It's blood curdling. I mean, it's really appalling. He brags about increasing federal death penalty crimes to 51. I think they'd been two or three before. He brags about it. He, I mean, it was all this super predator rhetoric. You know, it was, you know, I teach in a prison, and half of my students would not be in that prison but for Clinton and Biden. Uh, I mean, the the numbers of lives that Biden is responsible for destroying in in this country alone run and the families that he devastated. He should never be forgiven for that. But, you know, whether it's Israel, there's, you know, these people are very skilled at manipulating the message but you've got to look at what they do and shut down the message and the person who tipped me off on Obama was uh, Dennis Kucinich who gave me Obama's voting record two year voting record in the Senate he said you got to read it it is there is just not a corporate giveaway that this guy didn't support he even supported the death penalty And then Dennis said, you know, when he went to baseball games in Cleveland, I'm imitating Dennis, the ushers would go up and down the aisles saying, get your scorecard, get your scorecard. That's like the numbers for all the players. That's all you look at. Everything else is a mirage. And that's what you got to do with Biden. But, you know, most people don't look. Most people are passive consumers of information. And almost all information is corporate garbage. This person writes in, Shannon, have you been following what Governor DeSantis is doing in Florida, putting forward legislation that would require universities to survey students and professors to determine their political ideology, which would allow him to cut funding for schools who are too, quote, liberal leaning? Do you think competent fascists like him are likely to win in 2024 since Biden is failing? I think that without the kinds of radical reforms that can reintegrate significant segments of the American population back into the system to re-knit the social bonds that have been broken, Biden's legacy will be the rise of a competent fascism. That would probably not be embodied in Trump. I don't know. Mike Pompeo, who knows? We may not know the name yet. Tom Cotton. I mean, we were saved by Trump's incompetence 
and ineptitude. But Trump was responding to a phenomena. He didn't create it. Trump was the symptom, not the disease. And if we don't address the disease, then what's left of our very anemic democracy will be extinguished. And I fear that Biden's legacy will be like von Papen, to try and reach back to recreate a neoliberal ancien regime embodied in figures like Clinton, Bush, Obama, that across the political spectrum, people aren't buying. Your thoughts on solutions journalism and how it may factor into all of this? That was from Bernice. Well, I mean, let's just drop the word solutions. Journalism is a dying phenomenon. You see it in the consolidation of corporate control of newsrooms, the massive layoffs. You see it in the algorithms that marginalize writers such as myself on the Internet. So when the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop are published by the New York Post, New York Post is locked out of its own Twitter account. Um, The walls are closing in uh, on those of us who confront corporate and imperial power. I mean, I was once about as mainstream as you could get. And this kind of critique is totally unpalatable now, even on the margins of the Internet. And, and that's not conjecture, um, because we, I was at Truthdig with Bob Shear, and the publisher tried to fire Shear. We went on strike. She fired all of us. But right before then, the IT people did a graph on terms of impressions. So that means that impressions are like if you went to Google and you typed in imperialism, and I had typed in an article about imperialism recently, it would come up with everything else. So the algorithms mean that I don't come up. And so there was a decline in terms of referrals by impressions over a 12-month period that dropped from over 700,000 to below 200,000 or probably even below that now. And that's why I have a show on RT, because I, I can't, this kind of critique is not palatable on MSNBC or anywhere else. It's the same reason I used when I covered Czechoslovakia, if I wanted to listen to Václav Havel, I had to listen to Voice of America. Not, and Havel was a socialist. He didn't support American imperialism. But it was the only platform that he had. So uh, I worry about you know, the corrosion of journalism. I think that the large mainstream media organizations have just become cheerleaders for one side or the other. We know that from a Pew poll. Uh, 94% of the people who watch MSNBC identify as registered Democrats, 91% who subscribe to the New York Times, 87% who listen to NPR, and on Fox, you know, it's the, it's the opposite. But these are, this is what I saw in the former Yugoslavia. The media system breaks down, and you no longer have a common vocabulary based on verifiable fact by which people can communicate, and that led to fratricide. And that's what's happening. Now, it's very profitable. This is a profit model. It's a commercial model, but it's very dangerous both for journalism and for our democracy. You know, I know you uh, have children. I hope you don't mind me bringing that up. Do you find it difficult to talk to young people? 
So, you know, A, do you have your own feelings for how you communicate with young people, given what the situation on the ground is? And um, B, also, do you think about, I was thinking about Kierkegaard before, desire. And, uh, you know, you have the words despair and now sadism. And how these conditions, they cut into our desire, not just bodily desire, but I'm speaking in the full sense of the word. Because that relates to how a child is raised too. You know, you raise a child to feel like they can have full capacity of desire. So, um, yeah, first just thinking about kids and then also your thoughts on desire. Well, I became a vegan because of environmental reasons. That it was, and you should all watch Cowspiracy, goofy title, but it's a good movie, Um, because I realized the extent to which the animal agriculture industry was contributing to global warming and the breakdown of the environment, and it was something I could wake up the next morning and do, and so my kids are vegan, and they know why they're vegan. And I think that being honest about what it is we face, but then giving them something that they can do becomes a way of giving them a sense of empowerment. Um, I certainly speak about climate change. I probably don't give them Clive Hamilton's book. I think we have to acknowledge that reality. Um, and I think they fully understand that, they're, that we have to do everything in our power to thwart these forces. I mean, the Amazon rainforest is largely cut down for soy to feed animals. And it doesn't mean we'll change the world. It doesn't mean most people will become vegan. But we have to accept individual responsibility and take individual action. Is it possible to go into public office and do it differently or are politicians pressured to fall in line? Well, they're either pressured to fall in line and AOC has fallen in line or they're gotten rid of the way Dennis Kucinich was gotten rid of when they just, the Democratic machine in Ohio uh, redistricted Drew redistrict, did redistricting so that he wouldn't get reelected to the House. Um, I think that there should be, I mean, I've voted for the Green Party since 2000. I don't vote for Democrats, but change won't come through electoral politics. It will come off the street. And it's good to have third-party candidates that articulate positions we care about, but we're not going to affect the system through elections. I, I, I mean, I vote. I mean, that great quote from Emma Goldman, if voting was that effective, it would be illegal. Uh, it's just not that effective. What's effective is building, as we saw in the 60s, anti-war movements, women's movements, environmental movements. That's what's effective. And keeping politicians in check making them afraid. And so we almost have to start from scratch because all of our popular movements have been decimated by design. And we have to rebuild them. And it's one of the reasons why I have so much respect for sanctuary because it's going to be rebuilt in localities. It's going to, like these seeds, that's where it's going to come from. It's not going to come floating down from on high. I mean, there are socialists but the forces arrayed against them, as you know, are fierce. 
So, you know, what happens to Rafael Correo in Ecuador? Uh, I mean, we still have a blockade of Cuba. This is nuts. I mean, the latest in the UN, they just had a vote to lift the blockade. Every country on earth voted to lift, I think it's a 60-year-old blockade, except for the United States and Israel. I mean, what happened in Cuba, the imperial power just doesn't forgive. So, yes, there are, but those, those political leaders, I would argue, like Dennis, I think Dennis is a person of integrity, he was driven out of his office as mayor of Cleveland when the business community organized against him, threw the city into default, and then in Congress when the Democratic machine redistricted, so he couldn't, in a way that they knew he wouldn't be reelected. Um, I mean, so, uh, you know, what happened to McGovern? McGovern gets the nomination in 72, and you have the hierarchy of the Republican and the Democratic parties uniting to destroy McGovern. Henry Wallace, 1948, the same. We're not going anywhere without movements. It's not that there aren't political figures out there who are honest. It's just that without those movements, they're powerless. Yeah, you mentioned uh, things that uh, the Biden administration wouldn't do or could, um, couldn't do or wouldn't do. Uh, what I want to ask is, is there anything at this point that we should endorse that the administration is doing, if anything? Well, I mean, the Biden administration is undoing through executive orders some of the damage that Trump has done, all of which is good. I support it. But my fundamental point is that unless the Biden administration deals with these deep structural deformities, we're finished. And they're not doing that. I mean, Biden campaigned on a stimulus check for every American family of $2,000. That vanished. Biden campaigned on $15 minimum wage. That vanished. Biden campaigned on the public option. That vanished. That's not new for the Democratic Party. But if we don't begin to build those uh, structural reforms to mitigate the deep inequities within the society, then Biden's legacy will be a competent fascist. How do you feel about the question of voter suppression? Well, voter suppression is the tool that the Republican Party has embraced Mm -hmm. to essentially one of the tools that they've embraced to take control uh, in the next election. And given how narrow the elections are, uh, you know, and given the fact that I think many people are going to be frustrated with the Biden administration, we may very see our first, the first defeat may be flipping the House which I think now many people predict that the Republicans, which are clearly an anti-democratic party, but they're both corporate parties. And you have, they define their differences over cultural issues. They don't fight over the defense budget. They don't, the Democrats aren't promising to end wholesale government surveillance. I mean, they fight over what Freud called the narcissism of minor difference. Yes, the Democrats are more palatable culturally. They're not overtly racist. But I tell my students in the prison, some will say, well, I, nobody ever called me, you know, insulted me. And, and I'll say, well, you describe to me your school in Camden, New Jersey. And then I say, okay, now I'm going to tell you about the public school in Princeton, New Jersey, that has an Olympic swimming pool and a black box theater that cost $1 million. And, you know, eight, and I said, that's racism. 
that's institutional, that's still racism. And those are the kinds of things that have to be dealt with, and Biden's not dealing with it. Uh, do you consider uh, racism as a technique of sadism? Yes, and of course so, it is. Uh, what do you think we could do to stop the continuing divide in the freedom movement that's pushing for democracy for all people? Well, I mean, part of the problem is that the stories of the working poor and even the working class are invisible in the media landscape because commercial advertisers don't make money from them, so the media doesn't report them. So if huge segments of your population have been rendered invisible, essentially they've been neutered in terms of not only having a voice, but being able to build empathy for their experience. And that contributes, with, especially with a siloing of demographics into a competing media centers, that makes it almost impossible to counter. I mean, racism is about stereotyping. It's, it's totally fictional, um, but it is about creating a racial stereotype. And that is broken by actually knowing people who are confined within that stereotype because when you really know them, then, of course, you realize that the stereotype is ridiculous. But we're living in a society where, in, especially in the media landscape, and I would say in terms of the economic landscape. So, you know, societies are segregated. I live in New Jersey. It's one of the most segregated states in America. I live in Princeton. Are there black people in Princeton? Yeah, there are. They teach in Princeton. But Camden is 94%, or 96% people of color. It's the poorest city per capita in the United States. But you don't even drive through it on the way to Philly because they built an overpass, so you drive over it. So they don't ever see, people don't ever see it. And that's a fundamental contributor to racism. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. That was Chris Hedges, Questions and Answers on American Sadism. He spoke in Troy, New York on June 27th. Chris Hedges, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, is one of America's finest independent journalists. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media. And we have a series of programs with Chris Hedges. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Chris Hedges, Q&A on American Sadism, and for Vijay Prashad's book, Washington Bullets, The CIA, Coups and Assassinations, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. We're offering free transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us, 
1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to Steve Pierce and the Sanctuary for Independent Media. Jovich is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with the great tenor saxophonist Sonny Rollins, Freedom Suite. Thank you. 